One of the things that we've been doing as we've been moving through this series that we're in, in the letter in our New Testament known as 1 Corinthians. Throughout that letter, Paul calls for unity among believers in Jesus. And we don't want to just be people that read the Bible. We want to live out what it calls us to. And so in this series, we put into practice praying for other churches. So I'm going to invite David Kelly. He serves as one of our shepherds, our elders, that helps oversee and lead this church. He's going to come up and he's going to pray for a pastor named Chase Bowers, who is at Temple Bible Church today. And so, David, if you would, pray that blessing. Let's pray together. Father God, we are thankful for Temple Bible Church and what it has meant to this community, the lives that have been changed because of the church being there. And Father, we pray for Chase and his commitment to teach your word, to minister to those that are saved and those that are lost, that need you. And Father, we are thankful that we are united by your son, Jesus, and the love that he shows us. And Father, for, for Chase and for the Christians at Temple Bible Church, we, we pray for blessings upon them. We pray for an extra measure of wisdom that comes from you as Chase teaches and preaches. We ask for spiritual protection for that community of believers. And Father, we are thankful that you love us, that you love Temple Bible Church, that you love your believers, and you love the lost, and that you want us to, to seek them. So our mission for is the same call as Temple Bible Church to, to reach those, to minister. And we are so thankful that we are called to your service, and we are thankful that Chase and the Temple Bible Church is called to that also. It's in your son's most holy name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, David. I'm so grateful to our shepherds for leading in this way of being a church that doesn't see other churches as the competition but have a clarity of vision that we are in a battle not against other churches, but against the one that would rob us of our joy, the one that would rob us of our salvation if allowed. And so thank you for participating in that. And I hope that as we do this, you're encouraging, maybe you're reaching out through social media or through an email or a phone call to these places and encouraging them and letting them know that they're being, being prayed for. I know personally I receive so much encouragement, and oftentimes on a Sunday morning, I'll start receiving text messages from these guys or these other churches that will say, hey, praying for you today, praying for Western Hills today, praying for that God be glorified today. In fact, I'll give a shout out to our online crowd. I've been receiving uh, encouragement from around the world lately uh, as we've been going through this series, and I'll shout out to Earl in Tennessee. I got a note from... Uh, somebody that I've not actually met face-to-face and been in the same place with, but has engaged online and was just encouraging about what we're doing here as we're going through this letter, this ancient document that we find in our New Testaments, and we're learning how to be 
the church. And so whether you've been in church for a long, long time, all your life, or you're new to church, you're in the right place. Because, because of what's happened in our country and around our world over the last couple of years, there really is a sense that we've got to go back to the beginning. We've got to come in to the basics again. And I've said from the beginning that I believe that what we are experiencing right now, I, I can't speak for the whole world, but I definitely know this is true in our country, is that we're experiencing dynamics that more greatly resemble the first century dynamics than any century in between. So in the cultural influences in which this letter was written, I believe we're experiencing them again. And as we've been going through this, I've had some of you respond the same way, saying, wow, what we see in these words is what's going on in our world. And we want to be responsive to that. And how do we be the church in the middle of that? How do we be the church, the people that follow Jesus in a world where there's so much divisiveness and so much angst and anxiety going on, and a lot of people are seeking and hungry for the truth, but they're looking every which way. And we believe we're finding it inside Scripture, particularly inside this letter. So if you have your Bibles, or if you have our Scripture journals, I want you to open, open up to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'll tell you, give you a little teaser about what's going to be coming up is next week. Scott Siegel has already described that we're going to be worshiped together at uh, Lions Park. I really pray that you're a part of that. I pray that you don't just simply dismiss that because us coming together and being a church that brings down walls between people and lets the gospel be the gospel and let Jesus be Jesus in our midst is the vision for the church that we have is we go into these next five years together. And so this is just one sign of that, being a part of that and celebrating that together. So we'll be off that. Coming on the other side of Thanksgiving, uh, I'm going to launch into our Christmas series. And we're going to talk about what does it mean when Jesus comes into our life and what kind of exchange goes on there. And so we will pick up our Corinthian series, this very series, on the other side of the new year. Now, if you're familiar at all with some 1 Corinthians, we're going to get into some dicey stuff coming up. And I'm, this is not an effort to avoid it, just to delay it a little bit. No, kidding. Um, we just want to be able to give its due and uh, put it in place. And so we will pick it back up. We're going to finish out right where we are today, at chapter 6, 1 through 11, and then we will pick it right back up on the other side of the, of the new year. So don't lose your scripture journals in the meantime. Okay, this is going to be, a once again, another difficult type lesson. But part of the struggle here is you're going to, at first you're going to say, does that apply to me? I, I don't think this one's for me. And we'll, let's read the scripture and then we'll talk about why you may think it, it's that way. But I'm going to pick up in 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, in chapter one, verse 1 of chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that, you, that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases... 
Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and even that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong, but you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now, th- there's a lot of legal talk in this one. And remember, Paul, the author, if you've heard of Paul, the Apostle Paul, who spent the first part of his life um, persecuting those that would follow Jesus. He was very zealous as a very spiritual and loyal Jewish worship- worshiper. And then he encounters Jesus in a totally unexpected way to Paul. And he goes in back to all of his old scriptures, and he reads them with new eyes. And over a season of study, he comes to understand that scripture was always pointing him towards Jesus. And so Paul is very, very theological, and he's very practical at the same time. And he knows how to interpret law. Remember, in the first century, law and religion really intertwined each other in such a way that it was hard to tell where one stopped and and one began. And so Paul is addressing a very practical issue. Apparently, in this church, there are two people, at least, maybe more, but there's at least two, they're suing each other. They're at odds. Now, we know that would make uncomfortable in any church you're in. If you had one side suing the other or one person suing somebody else. But remember, this is a church that may be no more than 30 to 40 people. And so this is a serious issue. And so Paul, not one to back away from a difficult issue, goes straight to the point. He's already been talking about divisions. He's already been talking about, you think you're so smart. And now he takes those two ideas and he just plies them right together. And he's talking to this group and he says, I thought you were smarter than this. You yourself claimed you were smarter than this. Why are you suing one another? Now, look at his language. Look at how he does this. He says, he says do you not, I'm in verse... Um, Verse 2, do you not know that all the saints will judge the world, and if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? He's appealing to them, says, you have a different understanding of how law and relationships work. You're in Jesus now. You're in Christ now. Saying ultimately, it's you that will sit in judgment on the rest of the world. Now, I'm not sure how all that's going to work out, but what Paul is saying is, he's saying you have a wisdom and you have an understanding and you have an insight because of what Jesus has done for you, in you, and through you, that you are now taking whatever this grievance is, and most likely this grievance had to do with a financial grievance. So there, there's, there's some dispute over property. There's a dispute over money. There's a dispute over a debt. And they're suing one another. He says, you're taking that, and you're taking it into the secular courts to the side. And he's making this case that says, you're smarter 
than that. I grew up with a very distinct sound in my childhood, and it was the sound of the opening bars of People's Court coming on. If you're a certain age, you know what I'm talking about. If you're a different age, Judge Judy means something to you, okay? It's one of these TV judges, you know, and these little cases that we all get to watch, and, we, you know, and they're definitely done up for the drama and these extreme characters in them, but you're watching, you're going, those people got problems, you know. They, you know, they need to work that out somehow. And then you watch the judge come after them, and they scold them, and they get on to them. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying what you're doing when you take it outside of the church and you lay it before ungodly judges, it's like two Supreme Court judges showing up in front of Judge Judy asking her to decide. He said, it's, you don't play around with this stuff. Now, let me do a quick disclaimer. He's not saying there's never a reason you go to court. I, I know some of you have had that experience. I know it was traumatic. What he is saying, he says, when it's two believers in Jesus, there's other ways to work it out. There's other ways to solve what's at stake. And the reason that this is so critical for, for Paul is because he knows that the world is watching that, that the world can see what's going on. That the world's paying attention to this. And so when two people that claim the name of Jesus, and for Paul, it's all about if you claim the name of Jesus. When they claim the name of Jesus and they're bringing forth, and they see this squabble go on, they assume the exact same thing about the church that the church, that, that they assume about the world. People can't work anything out. There's nothing special about the church then. This is why he says, it is to your shame. Look at, look at what he says in verse, verse um, 5. I say this to your shame. Now, remember, this letter would have been received. They would have gathered the church together. They would have opened it and said, hey, Paul wrote us a letter. Y'all remember Paul? Let's, let's all hear from Paul. And then they get to the line and says, I say this to your shame. Again, Paul has no problem making them squirm in their seats as they hear this. And he says, what you're doing is you're shaming the gospel when you do that. You are proving that we're no different than anybody else when you live by the standards. Now, if you get a sense of what Paul writes through all of his letters, Paul is never, ever, ever worried about the government some kind of laws that are in place, some other army, some other empire, some other legal situation. He's never worried about the church losing its witness from the outside. You have to find a place where Paul ever has any kind of anxiety over, over I'm afraid we're going to lose our witness. He is always worried about the church losing its witness from the inside. So one of the takeaways I want you to understand from this, what Paul is saying is only the church can destroy the witness of the church. When these folks are going into the courts and they're having their arguments in front of people that do not hold up the name Jesus, 
all they're doing is destroying the witness. This is why I do think there is something different that Paul is talking about when it's people inside the church. He's saying there's something else that needs to be at work. There's something else that needs to be at play. Forgiveness needs to be at play. He says there's a more powerful testimony to what Jesus can do in a life than you fighting for your rights. Now see, that's what it boils down to, isn't it? It's all about a fight for our rights. They did something to me, they owe me something. There's a debt, there's a balance sheet that's out of whack at this point. I have rights now. And what Paul is trying to get them to see is that that their rights are no longer the focus. See, notice how he makes the appeal. I, I want you to look back in Scripture. He makes the appeal this way. He says, says um, I'll just pick it up in verse, uh, verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And look at his, look at his answer, his, his flip side to it. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Okay, do you understand what he's offering up? Instead of going into a lawsuit... Why don't you just suffer the, the, the wrong? Suffer the imbalance. Take the loss. <laughs> There's a lot in me that goes, now Paul, I appreciate chapter 13 where you talk about love. Let's rush ahead to get there. Because you're starting to meddle at this point. By most of our common sense, everyday logic, in the world that we live in, that sounds heretical, doesn't it? Suffer loss. But I have rights. I, 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 have, I, I have things that need to be defended. You know, this needs to be made right. They owe me Something And again, he's talking about with brothers, there's a different thing at stake. Can it not be forgiveness that rules? And so the second takeaway that I would have for you is he's calling on the, the path of Jesus in this one. The one that we follow who laid down his rights for our redemption. See, we follow one that was right in every sense of the word. That was perfect in every sense of the word. Faultless in every sense of the word. And at the end of his ministry, at the end of his life, he was unjustly accused, unfairly tried, and brutally executed. And did not claim his rights as the Son of God. That's the one that we follow. And that's what Paul is saying is, and there's where your testimony is going to be. There's where the power is going to be when you realize that we follow the one who laid down his rights for our redemption. And aren't you grateful he did? And Paul picks up. And so there's the real 
practical issue that he's addressing. And now what he's going to do is he's going to, he's going to give this structure, this, this foundation under it, so you know that Paul's not just picking things out of the air. He really wants them to think in Jesus' ways. He wants them to reason in Jesus' ways. And it's an upside down for many of us. And so here's what he begins to describe. And look at what he does in this powerful part. Uh, picking up verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, this and moving forward, as we go through Corinthians, Paul's going to get really specific on stuff that we need to talk about. So there's your teaser and your spoiler. We're going to pick it up in 2022, okay? But for today, he goes through this list. He says, don't you know, you guys are making accusations against each other. Don't you know that out in the world, there's all these, and he has this list, sexual immorality, homosexuality, drunkards, swindlers, greed. And did you notice that Paul, you can get about most of the way through this list, some of us and go, not my problem, not my problem, not my problem, not my problem, and there's always one on the list that just loops you right back in. If he would have just left greed off, I'd been happy. Because I could have looked out and judged everybody else then. But Paul's not leaving any room for anybody. And, and he goes, goes through this list. And then he has what I consider the most powerful phrase in this section. And I encourage you to write things down. I encourage you to circle things. And so here's what I want you to encourage. He talks about the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11, and here it is. And such were some of you. Wow. Corinthian church, the church in Corinth, they had a colorful past. And Paul says, this is how the church is made up. It is made up of people that had all of these different lifestyles, all of these different longings, all these different desires, all these different ways of being broken in the world. And that describes the church. The church is not gathered full of just perfect people that have it all together. If you think you're in a church full of perfect people, you have it all together. You need to really take a second look. Okay? I often tell people any place that would have me be the preacher always deserves a reconsideration. Okay? Because that's what we are. But do you hear the hope in that? Some of you were that way, and yet Jesus steps in and does something. You're living out of your old self, is what he was, is, is calling them to. 
You're living out of the way that you used to be when you're taking these lawsuits to one another. That's not you anymore. And look at what he does. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last few minutes, I'm going to spend some time with these words. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. I want you to take some notes here. First of all, the first thing I want you to observe is that all of these are verbs, but you're not doing the action. This is what Jesus has done to us. My my new identity, my new creation is not based because Scott got his act together. Because somehow I was able to put all the pieces in place, keep it all together, and then present it back to you and say, look, I've got it now. A supernatural work was done in my life on me, to me, and through me that allowed me to be washed, sanctified, and justified. And what does that mean? Here's the beauty. The first one I want you to say, washed, what was done to me? I was made clean. Most of you are thinking, you got a degree to interpret the word washed? God, I came to church today, now that means. It's hard for us to imagine the power of this because we have so much access to clean water. But remember, when this was originally written, it wasn't the same way. Taking a bath every day was not the same. And so for most of us, what we had to do is we have to tie back in something like when it snowed and froze over last year and many of us were without water. And calling and checking on some of y'all and you're like, yeah, we're three days without a shower or four days without a shower. And it was just a difficult time. Suddenly we started to appreciate the small things, didn't we? I was thinking about this this week. I was preparing for this, and I remember a mission trip that I had a chance to be on when I was in um, high school. And we took a mission trip to Jamaica. Now, I know that first sounds, when I say it, it doesn't sound like much of a mission trip, but there's about a 40-mile stretch of Jamaican beach that is a vacation. Everything else is a mission trip in, in Jamaica. And we were working with a, an orphanage that was there. And one of the things that we were going to do is we were going to clean out a shed, and they were going to use it for a classroom. So picture a metal building, old corrugated tin. It was every bit as hot and twice as humid as it was you know, here in central Texas. And the shed had been used for storage for agricultural products. And they had all these burlap bags of fertilizer. And we're throwing bags and we're moving this, their stack floor to ceiling. And all day long, me and my buddies are moving these bags. And every time a bag would hit, it would just kind of poof, And all this dust would come off of it. And we're just walking through the dust. And of course, you're sweating. It's just sticking to our clothes and our skin and just, just all over us. Finally, my youth minister comes along and says, you know what's in the bags, right? It's fertilizer. He says, you know how fertilizer's made, right? <laughs> no. At the time, I didn't. Now I do. We were throwing bags of dried manure around, and it was clinging all over to us. 
Oh, a shower felt so good that night. You have brokenness in your life. You have sin. And it just clings to us. And at no power of your own, Jesus comes along and he is able to make that clean again. Washed anew. You are washed, made clean. Second thing is you're sanctified. You are made holy. Sometimes we get confused at what the word holy means. It's basic form. Holy means you're set apart. You're designed for something else. You, you, somebody came in and pulled you out of everything else and said, I'm going to set you apart. That's why sometimes we'll talk about holy spaces. You know, some people come into a church or a cathedral and say it's, it's a holy space. Why? Because it's set apart for a different intention. You are a holy space. Paul's already talked about you being a temple. You're set apart for something else. God did that in you and with you, and he's doing that through you. Because you're sanctified. You're set apart, and you're identified for another purpose. And the last one. You've been justified. You've been made right. Perhaps the easiest way to think about this one, have you ever been typing a document, especially if you're in school, and you have to justify the margins? That means you line them all up, you make them right. That's what you're doing. You're putting them into a right relationship with each other. So once again, at no effort on your own, through the work of what Jesus has done on the cross, you've been made right. You've been placed into a right relationship with God. This is what we mean when we talk about righteousness. When you try to describe self-righteousness, somehow you're under the delusion that I can make myself in a right relationship with God. But when God's righteousness, the righteousness that comes from Jesus is upon us, then we are made into this right relationship. We're washed clean, we're set apart, we're made holy, and we're made right by the power of the cross. So what Paul is coming and doing is he's talking to a group of people that keep wanting to run back and use the old rules, the old past, the old identity, the old assumptions, the old way of thinking, and try to bring that in as they work out their relationships with one another. And Paul is saying that is doing everything to keep you from being fully human as you were designed to be. Because there's always something else at stake and the friction and the conflict there will always rob you of that joy. It's a group of people that are struggling to understand who they are. And so Paul tells them and Paul tells us. He tells us this. You are not defined by your DNA your past, or your desires. You're defined by the cross. It is what Jesus does on the cross that washes, sanctifies, and justifies. It's Jesus' work on the cross, not your righteousness, not your goodness, not your resume, that made you clean, made you set apart, made you holy, and made you right. And Paul is going to use this basis to say, live this way now. And he's going to drive out through the rest of this book, the rest of this letter. So we're going to be wrestling with this a whole lot. 
But he's saying, there's where you find your identity. I've been wanting to leave you with some questions as we go through this. So I've got three questions. And so if you've got a phone, you want to get that ready to take them down, we'll try to leave them up long enough to, for you to write them down if you want to jot them down. Question number one, have you been washed, set apart, and made right with God? This is baptism. This is what we believe the New Testament professes when you claim that Jesus is Lord, you surrender your life, you're buried in the waters of baptism by immersion to live new. If not, what's stopping you? What, what, what's the holdup in your heart that's preventing you from experiencing that? I want you to wrestle with that this week. Question two is this. What behaviors in your life bring shame to the gospel? If you already have experienced the washed, sanctified, justified, if you're already a baptized believer in the name of Jesus, I want you to an audit of your life. What behaviors would you bring, bring shame to the gospel? What behaviors are from the old life, not the new? What behaviors are from the past, not the future? Behaviors are from where you've been, not where God is calling you to be. And we've got to ask the same question as a church. What ways in this church would we be bringing shame to the gospel. Because once again, remember, Paul was never afraid of the gospel being defeated from the outside. But he is seriously concerned about the church allowing it to rot from the inside. And the last question is this. What do you value more? Your rights or your redemption? What's most important to you? I will demand my rights, and I will fight for my rights, and I'll stand up for myself. Or I will embrace the fact that I am redeemed. Made clean, made holy, made right. Child of God. And then as I interact with you, I'm going to live out of that identity. Not my rights. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for these words. These are tough words. So Father, I pray for anyone right now that has yet to experience what it's like to be washed by you. That you would be doing a work in their heart at this moment, breaking through whatever defenses there are, and being available to them to experience that. Father, I pray for any type of shame that we would be bringing to the gospel. Any type of division that may even exist inside of our church, that we would let forgiveness be the currency of the day, the law of the day, not the courts, not the bitterness. And Father, that we would allow you to do through us the things that you've done to us. I'm so grateful for Jesus and his work on the cross. And by it, we can stand cleansed, holy, and made right. By it, Father, we have a hope and a future. And I pray that you would call us into that. And that we would give glory to the name of Jesus. And all those who would see us in this time and this place would realize that we serve 
a great and loving God. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.